0: the scariest and most fascinating conversations I've had over the past couple of years was with my guest today, D.A. Wallach. As you'll hear in the show, D.A. started his career as a rock star. No, that's not the scary part. And is now a major investor in a field of science where technology and biology converge. Yes, that is the scary part. It's an area, as you'll hear, that is working on growing a version of human organs on computer chips, making seeds you can plant that will eventually grow into a fully formed house, Yes, you heard that correctly. And once we've realized the ethics of this, eventually maybe allow people to manipulate the genes of their offspring to create a super race of humans. Well, we'll see what happens after that. I'd like to welcome DA to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Th- thanks for doing it. Um, so we should, we should get started uh, uh, just giving some of the listeners a little a little background about how you uh, were a, a rock star for a little while and and then became a biotech investor. How how did that path take its course?
1: So it it began my freshman year of college when I started a rock band, which was called Chester French. And um, I basically determined halfway through my freshman year of college that that was what I wanted to do. You wanted to be a rock living. star? Yeah. yeah. I thought that's the best life one can have. Uh-huh. And I definitely didn't want to become an investment banker, which was what a lot of my classmates were pursuing. And then over the course of four years, it became a more and more real possibility. And um, we got very lucky in that during the last semester of college, we ended up getting sort of discovered by Kanye West and Pharrell and Jermaine Dupri and all these kind of like luminaries of the hip hop world. And um, we signed a record deal and moved out to California and started touring and making records for, for real.
0: And was it everything you dreamed it would be or less?
1: It it was more and less. Got it. I mean, I think it was an incredible way to be 21. Mm -hmm. Um, And, Got to see the whole country and lots of interesting parts of the world and got to work with some of the most brilliant artistic minds on the planet today, which is like an amazing experience and had the freedom to create our own stuff, which was really fun. And that was the whole point in the first instance was we just want to make stuff. So how can we spend as much of our time as possible doing that? The sort of dark side of it was that the record industry is not a particularly savory place. And also, um, I came to realize I didn't like touring at all. And we ended up spending, like most artists, the vast majority of our our time promoting the music Mm -hmm. on tour and a minority of our
0: time making new music, which had been what sort of drew us to it originally. So how did you go from uh, making music and hanging out with Pharrell and Kanye um, to investing in biotech? Well...
1: Uh, I don't exclusively invest in biotech. I invest in technology, sort of broadly speaking, although biology has become my sort of major interest over the past couple of years. But the journey to being an investor at all kind of began sort of halfway through that experience touring and making records. And I sort of somewhat quickly realized that it wasn't ringing all my bells, Mm -hmm. you know, that um, I really liked making the music, but I missed college and Mm -hmm. I missed the kind of intellectual exercise of it. And I missed reading and the people I was surrounded by were brilliant creatively, but not analytically necessarily. And so I kind of missed that part of my personality and had always romanticized investing as a vocation for some reason. It it sort of always uh, seemed to me like a profession that was almost adjacent to academia, but in which you wouldn't be permanently consigned to like an obscure menial existence on a college campus somewhere where you could sort of learn and talk to really smart, interesting people all the time. But then there were consequences attached to whether your conclusions about how things worked were right or not.
0: So how, so how was, how did you do, what was your first investment? Well, my first
1: sort of real investment was Spotify. And And how big was the company then? What was the... Well, the company was... So I was early, relatively speaking, but it was 2011. So I had found those guys in 2010. And I actually met them through friends at Facebook who were in early partnership conversations with Spotify. So the service was really popular in Sweden where it originated and was starting to get popular in some of the other Western European markets where it had launched but had not yet come to the US. And so I originally was just interested in getting an account because I was a huge music collector. I've always been. And I had, you know, like hard drives upon hard drives of terribly organized, you know, records that I loved. And so my first interest was just, I want this program that promises to eliminate the need for all those hard drives. And so I tracked down a free account and then I met the guys who were behind it. Uh, there was a guy named Shaquille Khan, who had been one of the early investors. He's an English guy and Daniel Ek, who's the founder and CEO of the company and met them and sort of became convinced myself and then convinced them that the U S was going to be a fundamentally different ball game from these other countries, because this was where all the most popular artists in the world lived and Spotify And streaming music were increasingly going to shake up the businesses that artists had built and the monetization model that they were used to, and was likely to become very controversial. And so I kind of sold my wares as, like, look, I know a lot of other artists. I'm an artist. I understand what the consequences of what you're building are going to be and how they'll be perceived by the creative community. And you should let me help you get out in front of this. And so, um, I, I became very quickly a true believer, not only that this was going to happen mm. and become the dominant way people consume music, but also that it was long-term, a very, very good thing for creators. And so, um, I, I became a total missionary for, uh, this model and, you know, made an investment, but then also got operationally involved in the company as its so-called artist in residence. And for three and a half years, uh, essentially went around peddling Spotify to any artist who was open to listening.
0: <clears throat> and it, and it, I, I, I see it worked out. Uh, um, so how did you go from from companies like Spotify to to biotech? And maybe you can tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about some of the like companies you, you're, you're invested in now. One you were telling me recently is a They're building organs on chips or something like that. So That's um, a really
1: cool one. Yeah. So, you know, Spotify was a very lucky find for me because as I've learned, you know, one's ability to invest intelligently in a particular industry sort of depends upon how deeply you understand the industry, you know, which is so often why entrepreneurs who are successful, you know, they were working in trucking for 20 years. They sort of knew every in and out of the business model and they were able to pinpoint some opportunity that would be invisible if you didn't know it uh, the way they did. So I got really lucky because I understood the music business when I found Spotify, and that gave me the perspective to recognize that it was a good opportunity. But I also sort of concluded very quickly as Spotify was becoming successful that I didn't want to stay in media, that there were just kind of fundamental characteristics of media businesses that I didn't like. And um, in particular, how unpredictable media is. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, there are a few businesses like Spotify that are platforms that are essentially agnostic to what content flows through them. But most of the people, and in particular, all the creative people are day-to-day making bets on whether some article or some book or some song or some movie will be liked by people mm-hmm. and will be popular. And I just find that to be unpredictable.
0: The whole thing is just a. it's, it's that there's no, it's all just close your eyes, throw a spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks.
1: I think so, you know, and people delude themselves into believing that they've found a pattern, yes. but I don't really think anyone ever does. So how's that different in biotech? Well, it's, it's not different. I don't think in many ways in drug development, which is what most people mean when they think about biotech. And so if you look at what, so-called biotech wall street analysts cover it's primarily drugs and drug development is a very very difficult business because most drugs take you know somewhere around a billion dollars to go from early stage you know laboratory idea to actually reaching patients and a very small fraction of the things that start looking very promising actually end up working To get a drug into the market and to actually start selling it to people you not only have to prove that it's safe but you have to prove that it works and you have to prove that in an empirical and rigorous way and it's an extraordinarily expensive and time-consuming enterprise so it takes a lot of these drugs you know almost 10 years to get to market and as i said almost a billion dollars and there's a large element of sort of gambling in there and again if you went and talked to the top biotech investors in the world Uh, some of them would probably explain it that way. And some of them would probably also say that there are ways of systematically de-risking it and doing it more thoughtfully than other people. But even the best investors in drug development have a relatively low hit rate, just like the best film studio, Mm -hmm. you know, only occasionally puts out a blockbuster. And so, What I'm interested in is not so much developing drugs, which is what we think of as biotechnology today. Um, What I'm focused on is the kind of um, perfusion of biological technologies in the entirety of the economy and human society. And when I look back at the past 50 years, only a portion of which I've gotten to experience, clearly- the big technology changes had to do with computers and network computing. And it's obvious how that has reshaped society and human behavior. Uh, My bet is that the next 50 to 100 years, certainly the remainder of my life, uh, will be driven more so – it will still be influenced deeply by computers – but the the big new thing that's going to happen is that we're going to start playing with living systems uh in a deterministic way and that that is going to reshape our economy and reshape what it means to be human and raise the most interesting and promising possibilities for our civilization what do
0: you mean by that that you're going to reshape i mean what uh, are you saying that plants will become computers or that we're going to you know what, what's, what are you talking about? Well,
1: there is a sense already in which plants and all living things sort of are computers. And um, fundamentally, what's going on in life and in the history of life is this staggering and sort of mystifying transfer of information through the universe. And we don't understand it well. But if you look at DNA or other biological forms of information encoding... Um, data essential, you can analogize it to data. We tend to, and people, have other, other people have pointed this out that we always think in the metaphors of our latest technology. So, you know, in the industrial revolution, everything was a steam engine, including men's sexual appetites, you know, but so, so it's hard to escape using the language of computers to talk mm-hmm. about biology. It's not, I mean, computers came later, right? But, um, there's a sense in, in, in which biology Um, and the living planet has um, developed the most sophisticated ways of manipulating matter and information. So in a single tree in my backyard here, the sort of, if you want to call them engineering, the engineering processes and solutions that evolution has solved for dramatically exceed the sophistication of the technologies we've built to do kind of similar things. So it, you or me, I forget what it is, is—of five or 10 watts or whatever, we run on a relatively low wattage. We're extremely energy efficient in terms of the, the way we convert the food we eat and the energy that's trapped in it or the sunlight we absorb into energy and action. I mean, you can go eat a bowl of oatmeal and you can write an amazing article and reorganize all this information that you've, you know, taken in from talking to people and learning. And so without rambling where that leads me is to a sort of enormous sense of humility about how primitive our technology is relative to the technology that
0: nature and evolution have designed. So, okay. So what is, what, what, What do you foresee happening? You can go pie in the sky if you want here, but what do you foresee happening with technological changes in biology that will affect the way we live in the future? Sure. Well,
1: the common theme of it is that, and and the way I would inflect it, is not that we're kind of becoming masters of biology or anything. It's really we're becoming students of the natural world we're starting to figure out the amazing, clever ways that nature has developed uh, its interface with the rest of the universe. And we're becoming capable of leveraging some of those engineering methods and some of those design ideas from nature and directing them towards goals that we think are worth pursuing. So- An obvious area that's already starting to transform radically is just manufacturing. So a lot of the people in the so-called synthetic biology subsector are focused right now on new ways of producing chemical products that we otherwise make in extremely clunky, environmentally destructive processes. So one area where people are focusing is on fragrances and flavors synthetic fragrances that get used in hair products and foods and all sorts of stuff R- right now we make them in kind of silly ways um, you know if you take a perfume for example, if you want to distill the essence of roses, people will you know f- go to the Nile River and collect you know huge buckets of roses and compound them into these enormous shipping containers and then they go to some vat somewhere where you boil them for hours and you ultimately distill it into this, highly concentrated version of the molecules that make a rose smell like a rose. Well, nature has figured out how to just make that molecule, but the way it's figured out how to do it is it's built a a rose essentially as a factory for this molecule. Well, if we can figure out specifically how the rose is making that molecule, which is really the thing we want, then maybe we can engineer a yeast or a simple bacteria to do that single process and do it in a vat at one one thousandth of the cost much faster with much less environmental impact
0: and so forth and that's so so is that kind of what you're what we're what we're seeing happen where we're seeing pigs grow human organs and things like that is that a a variant of that is that or is that different
1: well it's it's and there are deep ethical issues, obviously, that yeah. connect with that. That you yeah. know, really, are categorically different than is it okay to make rose smell um, in a vat? But the philosophical premise is kind of common to them, which is that nature has figured out how to make organs. You know the the best uh, the best apparatus for producing a human liver is a human. Being developing from an embryo. It does it very efficiently and consistently, and it works most of the time. People for the past couple of decades have been pursuing a parallel technological trajectory, which is, um, you know, we have, for example, with organs, significant shortages. That's why they're doing this company where they're trying to make human organs and pigs. We have a real problem there, which is people die. On a daily basis, because we don't have enough donor organs for everyone who needs an organ. And so, this parallel path people have been pursuing is can we essentially grow organs in the lab from the ground up? And that may turn out to be a, a real possibility, but the insight that has driven this alternate approach of maybe we could do it in pigs is well, you know, a pig is a much closer counterpart to a human in terms of its ability to grow
0: organs. Some people are more like pigs than others.
1: That's true. (laughs) Um, And, you know, prospectively
0: some pigs will become more like humans than other pigs. So so you, so there's a company you've invested in that is actually growing chip uh, organs on chips to do testing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um,
1: Another fascinating economic and ethical dimension of the current biotechnology sector is that one of the reasons that it takes us so long and so much money to develop new drugs to treat human diseases is that a lot of the work we do is done using animals. And, um, you know, however you feel about it ethically, the reality is that we run through tens or hundreds of thousands of animals who effectively have no choice uh, but to sacrifice their lives to humanity every year in the service of our research and development efforts. And people use animals because if you're trying to study a disease like cancer, looking at the complex processes that are involved in the onset and progression of cancer really can't be done without a fully fledged organism. And so people will use primates or mice um, or pigs as a sort of proxy for humans.
0: And they give it cancer. They give those animals cancer and then they test their drugs on them. And and
1: that's exactly right. And then they dissect them and they see where the drugs ended up and whether they created any problems in any organs or, you know, it's a brutal process, even if the outcomes of it are noble. And it's a very expensive process. And. That's to say nothing of the subsequent testing that then has to be done before a drug becomes legal, which is on humans. And um, people who participate in human clinical trials, the patients who participate are genuine heroes. They're in many cases pursuing this type of participation because there is a self-interested aspect to it. They want to live and there's no good alternative, but they are giving their lives the rest of us or risking their lives for the rest of us. And it's the only way we find out whether these compounds actually work and whether they're dangerous or not. And so the combination of the expense and time involved in studying biology using animals and people, which of course are animals too, is immense. And this company that I invested in, which is called Emulate, is one of several businesses now that are pursuing ways of recreating a physical simulation of a complex biological organism, but without a living organism. So they make these little chips that they don't look like computer chips, but they're, they're quite small. They're like the size of a cracker basically. And on one of these chips, they will essentially recreate the physical environment in which the cells they're trying to study reside in an organism. So if they're studying lung cells, they have to recreate the physical forces that occur when you or I breathe. The the cells in our lungs are constantly subjected to these sheer physical forces from the airway as we breathe. And in fact, they don't behave sort of like themselves in the absence of those forces. So this company is taking as many of those environmental characteristics that are needed in order to get cells to behave true to their selves, and they're um, they're recapitulating them in this in vitro environment. The promise of this long term would be that we could uh, stop having to use animals, and ultimately stop having to use humans as um, as guinea pigs.
0: And so, the, so, you would be able to test your drugs on these chips.
1: That's exactly right, and and you'd be able to with a high degree of fidelity, predict whether they will
0: work in people. So let's just um, uh, fast forward a little bit here. Um, And can you kind of put on a futuristic hat and say, you know, how do you imagine that our lives will, what they'll look like um, in 20, 30 years or 50 years, if you want to go that far, with these technologies that you're talking about and not just, not just talking about the cells and the drug testing, but I'm talking like the big picture stuff here.
1: Well, I think that it's, it's very hard to predict time scales with anything, but let's just say at some arbitrary point in the future. If humans survive, which I don't take for granted that we will, but if we survive and if we don't destroy, especially with Twitter. Yeah. um, If we don't destroy our habitat and our species, uh, I, I would predict that you're going to see this sort of biologicization, or I don't know what the good word, I don't know what the right word for that is, but you're going to see this engineering of biology. Um,
0: you mean engineering of humans
1: too? Engineering of humans too, but engineering of living systems in the service of humans and of the planet. You're going to see that become a part of everything, just in the way that computers are becoming a part of everything. So give us an example of how that works. Well, um, some of the major areas where this is obviously going to happen that are obviously biological are food, human reproduction, animal husbandry, maybe even the replacement of animals as a food source, because we're becoming capable of- producing meat without animals, just like the organ thing we were talking about. Then there are more sort of far out there things that are really interesting. Uh, a buddy of mine who's a brilliant and extremely pioneering biologist at, at Stanford, Drew Endy, uh, talks about what if one day you could plant a seed in the ground and a house grows out of the seed and so we could be how would, how would the house We could grow be growing from? houses. Well, no one knows exactly, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. we, no one's invented this yet. but the remarkable thing about the type of life that we represent is that, you know, you or I grew out of a single cell. I mean, a single tiny microscopic cell self-assembled. It's like a floppy disk got put into the universe and what happened was it self-assembled into a person. And the complexity or you of me from an engineering standpoint, the number of integrated systems and the types of cellular communication that are taking place, we can't understand it because our computers are not yet good enough to even figure out how the hell it works. But nature's figured it out and it's doing it every day and it's doing it essentially for free. And so... If a single cell can turn into a person or an animal or a red oak tree, um, it's not unthinkable that we could leverage that design language to engineer a seed or a cell that could turn into a house. I mean, a house is like a box with, you know, a few subdividers
0: in it. So do you think that, that um, we're going to get to a point where we will... We, we will be manipulating cells in humans to, you know, for example, you know, with all the CRISPR stuff that's going on, um, where we say, okay, well, we're going to, as those cells divide, uh, and, and create a human, we're going to say, not only that we're going to make sure that that person doesn't have, you know, life-threatening diseases or disabilities and so on, but, well, why not just you know make them a little stronger or make their eyes better than twenty twenty or whatever it is do you are we going to get to that point? Well, I think we're certainly going to get to the
1: point of choosing whether we want to go down those roads or not, and these are going to be some of the most interesting and complicated philosophical debates
0: that our generation and subsequent generations are going to need to adjudicate so one of the things i i, I we spoke about this once before and i and I remember saying to you. Well, of course, we just don't do it. You know, we don't get to play God. And your response was, well, if we don't, someone like China will, and they'll create some sort of super race. Lay that out. Like, what does that look like? Well, there is a – It's almost like we don't as a – so American culture is very different than – Japanese culture and European and so on and so forth and and if, if if there are these debates where you know we decide oh we're not gonna we're not gonna the Senate says we're not gonna allow this we're not gonna allow companies that do this stuff um, it doesn't the world is not going to adhere to that there are going to be you know what what, what stops North Korea or yeah. China from saying oh well we're gonna create a super race that is is sure more well I think the Prospect
1: of that type of unilateral behavior, even further deepens the importance of international governance structures. And you know, those of us who are working on the technology side of this need to appreciate that the technology is sort of neither good nor bad, like most technologies. You know, it, the good and the bad arises when people start doing stuff with it. And most technologies can be used to great benefit of humanity or the planet or to great destruction. And insofar as we as a species don't figure out how to constrain the most dangerous possible uses of these technologies, that's going to be to our own peril. So I don't know if I'm really answering the question, but I think- What we're about to inherit as a beneficiary of the incredible work that scientists around the planet are doing in a very collaborative, non-nationalistic way, by the way, Um, what we're going to inherit are a set of capabilities that we're not really ready for yet, philosophically or politically.
0: Where, Where do you fall on it philosophically and politically?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's new and I see multiple sides of it. So before I even knew a lot about the science that might arise in the context of genetic engineering of humans or other living systems, I read a great book by Michael Sandel, who's a legendary philosopher at Harvard. He gave this course Justice, which sort of strangely has become an enormously popular thing on the internet in China. He's like a huge celebrity in China as this American philosopher who talks about justice. Anyways, he wrote a great book called The Case Against Perfection. And the argument that he lays out there against this kind of engineering of human traits, you know, I want my baby to be smarter and taller and more handsome and whatever, is that there's a real benefit that comes from the fact that we don't get to choose our children and we don't get to choose our extended family members. And that going through that experience of not having choice, of sort of being in the hands of the universe's randomness, forces us to develop human character traits like uh, empathy and acceptance that otherwise we might not get a chance to practice. And so his argument is essentially that the absence of this technology gives us uh, an opportunity to be sort of human and there's something really romantic and appealing about that to me on the other hand um, and you have to be very very careful because we also have a really sordid history of eugenics and people talking about social Darwinism and you know these are concepts that are heavy and they you know Nazis were into them and so this is dangerous stuff but that being said if you look at what's holding back our species. We seem to be built psychologically for an era that we don't live in. We're essentially cave people trying to get along with with, iPhones. with the internet and iPhones and this need to cooperate at a massive multi-billion person scale. And our psychology over and over again proves itself really optimized for, for tribalism and divisiveness and nationalism. And so I, I, I'm not against the prospect that maybe what we end up doing with these technologies is improving our species so that we can actually function in the future that we're going to need to survive.
0: So it's almost as if technology has moved way quicker than uh, than human i mean it's without a doubt yeah then the dna and the evolution of humans i mean human evolution takes place over hundreds of millions of years and yeah technology of course advances on an hourly if not minute by minute basis these days and and that we are you know we are still operating on the same principles that that are that k people did and and so you're saying that, that that by Edit it By being able to edit human species, we could speed up and adapt quicker? Well, I'm not
1: proposing that we do anything, but an interesting type of question that one could ask that is less obviously scary than should we make everyone Aryan is <laughs> what, what does humanity look like if we were to uh, allow parents to select an embryo or to engineer an embryo such that their children were more compassionate? And I don't know whether that's a good, Sounds pretty good Pandora to, to let out of the box, but we have to recognize that, you know, there are ways that you can imagine
0: these technologies enriching our species. But so, so but how, so these, these technologies are on the, on the border of, of existing at some point, how are, they, how are we going to stop them or, or, or control them? Or are we not? Well,
1: the the good news, I think, it depends how desperate you think we are in needing new technologies like this. Well, it's I not, don't that, think it's, we're, it's not yeah. that
0: we're desperate in needing them. I think it, we're, we have a propensity to always use them. Right. You give someone a hammer, sure. they figure out something to hit.
1: So you know that's true. But then by contrast, the sophisticated culture, cultural and political structures that we built to suppress the continued usage of nuclear arms is an example of a great success in controlling uh, dangerous technology. And so we, we tend to count our losses, but not our victories, because the victories sort of end up being invisible
0: to us. Hold on a second no, I, I though. I completely agree yeah. with what you're saying, but but there is a clear, I think part of the reason that we have Figured out ways to not have, to have a, a nuclear war on Earth is partially because the technology isn't that old, sure. Um, uh, on the scale of things, but also that there is a clear, a, a clear response to a nuclear war, which is destruction. Yeah, and no clear winner in sight. But when you just said before, like, oh, we should, could we could we manipulate our genes to make us more ethical and so on and so forth, and my initial reaction is like, of course. But then maybe I thought about it afterwards and I was like, huh well, maybe we will become so nice that we'll be like in that Portlandia skit where the two cars keep beeping each <laughs> yeah. other like, you know, you go, no, you go. And, and, and we as society end up killing ourselves because we're, we become too nice. And so I, I don't know if, you know, if the gradual change of um, biological change brought on by humans and technology is as obvious as nuclear war. Well, I, I don't think it is. And
1: it's also not obvious what our goals should even be. I mean, say we all could even agree that, oh, you know, we should do everything we can to make the next generation more compassionate. What does that mean? Is there a clear genetic basis for what compassion looks like? I mean, we barely understand the science of genomics and how genes or epigenomes or culture produce so-called phenotypes, the term biologists would use, uh so we neither have the understanding of the engineering that's needed to to really implement these kinds of technologies for humans at scale nor as this conversation is making abundantly clear do we have the ethical or political apparatus to even think about it one thing i do know and an area where i am applying myself is that you can't have these conversations in a thoughtful and Productive way without the average person having a much greater literacy around science and biology. And so, one thing that I would at least hope we can all agree on, wherever we sit politically or or ethically, is that we need to enhance the public's understanding of the science that relates to these questions. Because if people don't even have the vocabulary, uh, in the first place, they can't have a, a good conversation about it. And what we're gonna need over the next several decades is a really deep and uh, long term conversation about how we move this stuff forward or don't.
0: So um, uh, okay, so let's 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 segue into another aspect of this. Um, you know, these conversations um, uh, you know, Einstein um, once said that, he believed that the universe was so complicated that, that, there, uh, that there had to be a God um, uh, and that there had to be some higher power. As someone who has studied all of these technologies, for want of a better word, and and um, biologies, and, and and you sit and talk to scientists and on a daily basis, incredibly smart people at the Santa Fe Institute and so on, do you believe that that we are just this thing that's here by chance? We're kind of like I don't know if we're a bug or a feature to be quite honest, but on earth but um or is there some greater purpose for all of this that we are kind of screwing with? hmm Well my
1: kind of tentative uh, view on this is that, if you look at the miraculousness of biological systems in particular, but as an extension of that, things like, you know, people at Santa Fe Institute have done some brilliant work that connects biology to cities, for example. Cities are essentially a biological thing now that um, seem to behave in the ways of life. So when you look at all of this incredibly intricate, emergent structure, that there is in our world, um, and probably elsewhere in the universe, it it feels to me like we're on a path, you know, and I, whether that ends up leading you to a belief in destiny as it has some of my friends or not, the, the universe is moving in a direction. And, Um, physicists talk about increase in entropy over time and the arrow of time. There's this sort of mystery in physics of why does time seemingly only flow in one direction? Whereas most, um, properties in physics are reversible, you know, Newton's equations, you can run backwards and they tell you where the ball came from. If you know where it ended up, um, you can't do that with time. Time only goes in one direction. So people are trying to figure this out and, so my, my sort of tentative view is the universe is unfolding in a particular direction and it kind of selects for things that help it get there wherever it's trying to go. And it tends to discard things that stand in the way of that trajectory. And The risk of this view is what people call the naturalistic fallacy, which would be to to essentially say that anything that exists is self-justifying. You know, and you certainly, I I have trouble believing that Nazism is a good thing. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, that being said, you look at even something that I believe is a huge mistake for us to make, like Donald Trump's election. If the immune response Of society to that perverse event ends up sort of uh, chastening our commitment to a much uh, more appealing ethical worldview and a vision of the future. Thirty years from now, we may look back and say, "Wow, that that Trump election really unsettled something," or it, it it. shook up some paralysis that we couldn't figure a way out of. So my point is just that the universe seemingly takes occasionally kind of crooked routes to get to good things. Obama talked about this. He had, you know, people talked about this a lot in the Oval Office. He had a Martin Luther King quote that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Well, I kind of believe that. And it is ultimately a spiritual sort of faith but i do think there's some good evidence to support it
0: so do you think so is that your way of saying that you do believe there's some higher purpose to all of this or is that your way of saying that you don't know well i think my view is because wait so i think just, yeah. just to, to, to interrupt sorry is yeah. is um i've always believed that there is some higher power purpose i'm not saying like some guy sitting in a with a white beard and a cloud somewhere, but but that the fact that you and I can sit here and I can and I can move my I have a mouth that I can move and there right. are sounds that come out that you can interpret and that my fingers can wiggle up and down and, and and so on, that that it all seems a little too all seems to be a little too work too well for it not to work for a reason. And and the you know, when I and it's funny because with the election of Donald Trump there was this moment of like, well, what, if there is some larger purpose, what is the purpose for that? You know? Um, and, and it's kind of led me into this. And then also, you know, reading about all of this biology and the technology that's changing and growing chips on, you know, if we could eventually plant a seed and grow a human, you know, um, it, you know, w- at what point do we, or if you, if you can grow a, a liver in a pig, why can't you grow an entire human and put it together? And, and at, at what point do we become God and is there God? And I think that's the thing that, that, that now keeps me up at night. Well, I to- think of
1: this as uh, humanity's awkward adolescence and in many different areas, we're essentially having to face up to the fact that, you know, we got handed the keys and we have to learn how to drive. And um the, ability to exercise some more influence over the direction that the universe takes. And in particular, our planet takes, I mean, we can't aspire to control the universe, but um, at least our planet we've proven we can deeply impact. I mean, we can destroy ecosystems, we can help recreate them. We have a sort of responsibility to help the universe move in the direction that it's trying to go. Uh, or it will probably discard us. And so the lack of certainty about where this is heading gives rise to human discourse. And that's what's fun is, you know, debating with other people, like, where do you think this is going? How, How can we be most helpful? But to sort of translate that into these metaphysical terms that we're talking in, to me, it means that the universe is basically indifferent to us and we have a chance to stick around if we help do the work it's trying to do.
0: What is it trying to do?
1: Well, I mean, I would like to think that it's trying to lead us towards greater justice, towards greater biological diversity, towards the continued proliferation of knowledge and information. And the clue that we have as to where it's going is to look backwards and to zoom out and say, does this look like a, tr- like a vector? You know, da- Stephen Pinker, for instance, wrote this book, uh, Are An- Better Angels of Our Nature, that, you know, sort of like, stop being pessimistic, everyone. Like, we're actually much less violent than we used to be and so forth. Well- you know, if you zoom out, even just human history, uh, we seem to be getting better at organizing and cooperating in large groups of people. We seem to be getting better at building things. We seem to be getting better at moving information around the planet. And we seem to be getting less violent, which is I think equivalent to becoming less stupid, becoming more reasonable. And, um, so, we should, we should keep going on those paths. Those paths give us a hint as to what we should keep working on. They're an invitation to continue the work of prior generations that has been selected for. Nonviolence over time is something that the universe is seemingly rewarding us for. And if we, in, by contrast, had become much more violent over the past several thousand years, uh, we might have extincted
0: ourselves. And that would have been an indication that the universe didn't didn't want find it. that helpful,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, so.
0: that makes sense. So, um, last couple of questions, uh, and, and then we'll wrap up. So, you, you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned a few times in our conversation about um, you know if we stick around. Um, you know, Elon Musk has recently been talking about how artificial intelligence is much scarier for the future of humanity and could destroy humanity than than North Korea and a nuclear war or whatever. Um, as someone who has, you know, you're v- very knowledgeable in this stuff, do you worry about things like that? Do you worry about us creating technologies that are going to eviscerate ourselves or w- where, 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 what you're thinking of? Well, as I said before, I don't
1: think of technologies as being inherently good, good or, or bad. Evil. Yeah, And so what I do worry about is, who has access to new technologies and who has the power to deploy them. And the scary thing about these AI and machine learning technologies is that many of them are being developed in the most advanced ways within a few private, very powerful and very well-funded corporations uh, whose interests may not be well aligned with the rest of humanities. So that's certainly a risk, but that's really a question of the distribution of power and access to technology and not a question of the inherent good or bad of the technology itself. And the same applies to um, biological technologies like the ones we were discussing. Um, you know, I, I think one scary thing in the biological domain is actually phobia of the technology. And one of the things that I've really dedicated myself to, particularly here in LA, which is a hotbed of anti-vaccine fear-mongering and anti-GMO food fear-mongering, is um, I've been trying to help people understand that they shouldn't just be scared of these technologies a priori without either understanding them or considering the good that they can do for us. And it strikes me that in particular, the environmentalist movement took a really dangerous wrong turn in the past 50, 60 years. A turn against nuclear power, a turn against uh, geoengineering, a turn against genetic engineering of food and, and plant life. To me, those tools are the way out of our environmental catastrophes. And so I'm actually extremely worried about
0: people being irrationally scared. So you're and you're so you you're pro GMO food and things like that being developed. Well, look, again,
1: the technology is neither good or bad. I'm pro using all available technologies to solve problems that we ought to solve. And over the past several thousand years since the agricultural revolution and and then the industrial revolution, We have systematically and at an unbelievable scale been destroying our planet, been destroying biodiversity, been destroying our own uh, environment insofar as it impacts our individual health. We have crises of obesity and other epidemics of uh, immunological diseases and so forth. These are real problems we got to solve and all available technological tools ought to be on the table. And right now, the people who believe that we need to solve these problems, the sort of good guys who you'd want to be the good guys, are dangerously phobic about the tools that they should be using. And that's my fear. We've got a false choice right now. Either you're a climate change denier, anti-science asshole, or you're a... Anti science, closed minded environmentalist who believes that bioengineering and geoengineering are conspiracies of Monsanto and a few other large corporations. I'm not defending any individual corporation or anything. And again, all these technologies can be used for evil too. But the people who we need to count on in our communities doing this important work right now are not
0: thinking clearly. And to me, that's really, really scary. So, okay, last question. So I usually, when I do these interviews and these podcasts, I usually ask people, um, if you could go back in time and, uh, and give your younger self like 20 years ago, a piece of advice, what would it be? But I think I'm going to turn it around with you (laughs) and ask you if you could go forward. Oh my gosh. In 20 years, uh, uh and give your older self a piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, Probably
1: like, you know, don't turn into a jaded asshole. (laughs) You know, I mean that there's so, so I,
0: no, no, your older self. I'm just kidding.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's so many, you meet heroes, right? Who are now old guys or girls. Yeah. And, that's consistently what disappoints me about them. Yeah. You meet them and you go, oh man. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, it and it's like, that's a sad place to end up. I definitely don't want to go there, but it's super possible.
0: <laughs> what what uh um uh, real last question here. What give us a, a scenario of um a, a good scenario and a bad scenario. And again, I know I know what you said about technology not being the good or the bad, but give us the scenario twenty, thirty years from now, um, of a way you think biological technology will change society uh, for both good and for bad. Mm. Well, let's. And they can be two different technologies.
1: I mean, let's do something really simple, which is the way we produce food. And this is something that's fully happening right now. This trans transformation, the way we do it. The biggest story on the planet right now, aside from climate is that everyone is moving to cities. So we are becoming a totally urban species. And the ways that we produce food are not logical or smart in that context. So one thing that will be to our great benefit is moving to a totally controlled farming infrastructure where we are producing probably the majority of our food indoors close to cities or in cities and probably producing a lot of foods that we have specifically designed to work very well in that controlled environment. And these foods are going to be tastier. There'll probably be foods that don't even exist yet that we're going to invent that are amazing. I mean, I really, my, one of my goals, which is just a silly one is I really want to be a part of making things taste like chocolate bars that are healthy for you. I, oh God, I, I would I love so a, a banana that tastes like a milk chocolate bar. That's, that's <clears throat> my dream and, and is super healthy for you. And, and in fact, it'd be amazing if it could be so nutritionally perfect that you don't need to eat anything else because I would totally <laughs> buy into that. But um, we're going to have more nutritious food. It's going to have a much lower ecological detriment to it, you know, or less environmental impact and so forth. It'll employ people, hopefully, in some capacities, marketing or otherwise. The dark side of it is, you know, there are a lot of farmers right now. There are a lot of people in the world make their living in agriculture, and that's changing rapidly. I mean, when given the choice, it seems like a lot of people in China are pretty eager to get off of the paddy and into the urban centers. But notwithstanding that, technological change begets social and economic change, and What I worry about as a consequence of a lot of these technologies is that the technologies provide great solutions, but they do produce dislocations in the economy and in the social hierarchy. And I'm worried that we don't have societies that are built to manage what are going to be inevitably very difficult social and cultural transitions. And I worry about the people who are going to be hurt. In those transitions, Um, you know, global warming is going to be fine probably for us. You know, if California Malibu falls into the ocean, we're just going to move to Ohio, and you know, you'll write stories or books or screenplays from Ohio. I'll do the same thing. But if you live in Bangladesh, it's going to be a lot scarier, and you're going to lose your house and your civil society may fall apart your government may collapse you may have non-governmental extremist organizations arise it, it may turn into hell and similarly um the rapid pace of economic transformation that may result from the speed with which some of these technologies surprise us uh is really scary to me and so I, i'm just trying to kind of like sound the alarm in a really optimistic way that everyone needs to one, think about how great this stuff can be, but two, get ready for it and start preparing the society and innocent people in the society for the way that they're going to need to change their lives to accommodate this sort
0: of inevitable transformation. Well, on that positive (laughs) note, (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks to my guest, D.A. Wallet. Also, thank you, D.A., for scaring the bejesus out of me. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Milton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work and my editors at Vanity Fair. I'll see you all next week.